And um, because we are recipients of his mercy and grace, we want to extend that in just real practical way to people who need his mercy, who need his grace. Um, none of us deserve, none of us have earned God's favor, none of us have earned his mercy. And, and because of that, we want to extend unearned mercy, unearned grace to those in need. So and we'd love for you to join with us. Uh, we have Angel Tree uh, angels, I think, out in the lobby. They will be out there this week, next week, and we'll be able to sign them. Uh, we'd encourage you to take one. Uh, if you don't have the means to do that, uh, join with somebody else to do that as well. Maybe a, a small group, a care group could adopt three or four of them or more, uh, pull them together and just be a blessing to them. A great way to show God's blessing to people and then perhaps an opportunity to share the gospel as well. So um, we, we are grateful for that opportunity to partner together. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Judges 10. As you're doing that, just want to remind folks that we have a resource. It's got nothing to do with Judges, but it has to do with the upcoming season of God's grace extended to us in sending His Son. And I'd encourage you to think about the ways you can lead your family, lead your own soul through meditations on the advent, the, the coming of Christ to this world. And you can do that through this resource we're, we're providing. I think it's $6 out in, the resource, out in the lobby. If you're not able to afford that, we would love to give that to you. Um, it's Advent Meditations from the book of Hebrews. And by the way, this is a great follow-up to the fact that the ladies have been going through a Bible study in Hebrews and the men have been going through a Bible study one-on-one in Hebrews. So what a great way to apply this as we look forward to the Christmas season. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. Be reading verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy, inspired word for us today. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Malachites, and the Maonites who oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. 
Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for continually bringing us your word to reveal things to us about ourselves to reveal our deep need for you, to reveal who you are, to reveal, Lord, how we can respond to you, how you call us to respond to you, Lord, to reveal your grace and your mercy to us. God, I pray that that would be the case this morning, that you would enliven our hearts and minds to you, that you would, you would use your words to, to cause, to stir up a response from us to your grace and mercy. And God, I pray that we would live in response to your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, want, we once had some friends who, they were extremely generous, they were very kind, they were compassionate. They kind of exuded this attitude of mercy to people around them. They, they had a knack for seeing people who were in need. They had a knack for seeing people who were lonely, who were destitute, addicted. And so because of that, they, they were drawn that way. They were drawn to people who didn't have homes, who were underprivileged. We, they were drawn to people who were less fortunate than them. And they often not only ministered to people like that, but they, they had people into their home, not just for a meal, but they asked people to come and stay with them so that they could disciple them, so they could teach them and train them. And, and, and they, they taught them not only life skills, but they taught them the basics of Christianity, the basics of who God is and who they are and how they can respond to God. And, and there were so many success stories that this couple had. They, they really were extremely loving and gracious. And, and time after time, there were many people who responded, and, and they raised up, and they sent out. And these people, they, they went out, and they would hear from them years later, and they say, wow, you know what, I wanted to let you know that, that now I'm living differently. I've got a job. I'm, I'm in a church. I'm, I'm discipling someone else, all because of the kindness, the mercy that you showed me. But it wasn't always that way. There was one guy who came to live with them that really rocked their world. He came and lived with them, and he seemed like the most affable, kind, friendly guy. He seemed really genuine. They responded well. He lived up in their attic for a while, and um, they were kind. They fed him. He ate family meals together. They had family worship together. He seemed to be doing okay. But what was really happening behind the scenes is this guy was stealing from them over many months stealing things in their home, pawning them, selling them. Whenever he could, he would take five, ten, twenty dollars out of their wallets, out of their purses, not too much so they would go unnoticed. And and he was robbing them. He was taking their mercy for granted and stealing from them. And then when they discovered it, they were so grieved because all he was trying to do was collect enough money so he could go out on his own and live for himself. He wasn't really looking to respond to what they were teaching him, what he was learning. He was just looking to accumulate to himself so he'd go out on his own. And they kicked him out, which is a good thing. They didn't want him to think that that was okay to manipulate and deceive, to take mercy for granted. What we see in this passage, really, at the beginning, is, is God extending huge mercy. There are 45 years in just the first five verses depicted. And you can gloss over that and not see that, wait a minute, there's 45 years that are drama-free. And that's pretty remarkable in the book of Judges. It's pretty remarkable in our own lives. Could you imagine 45 years of your own life, drama-free, peaceful? 
No conflict. And yet what we see is they reject the mercy and grace of God that was meant for them to respond to with gratitude, that meant for them to respond to with worship. And what we see there is God then corrects them. He rejects their manipulative pleas and he corrects them because his goal is restoration. His goal is for them to truly depend on his mercy, depend on his grace. And, and I think this, this account is really meant to teach us something. It's meant to teach us that, that don't, take, don't take God's mercy for granted. Don't take God's mercy for granted. That warning is meant to shock. Don't take his mercy for granted. Instead, respond to his mercy with repentance and gratitude. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And to begin with, we're going to see that how mercy and grace are extended in verses 1 through 5. Mercy and grace are extended. And I think that's why we have that here. These aren't minor judges in the sense that they're unimportant. They're minor in the sense of that they're, they're not spelled out in detail what all of these 20, 45 years looked like. And, and these minor judges, they bracket not only the judges to come, Jephthah and then Samson. On the other end of that, we see God's mercy and grace extended again with some other so-called minor judges. And, and what I think they're meant to show us is this is a period of relative calm, of relative peace. There was nothing major that transpired that was no, no major enemy attacked them. No, no one was coming against them. Tola, his name mean, means worm. He was a contrast, a sharp contrast to Abimelech who exalted himself. And yet we see that there was, there was peace there for 23 years. He doesn't tell us much about him. He was from the tribe of Issachar, he, which was well west of the Jordan and kind of in the heartland of Israel. He was, he was raised up there. He judged Israel for 23 years. He, he, his base of operations was Shamir. That's where he lived. That's where he judged. That's where he draw, died. There was no widespread ambitions. Those are good when people are not self-seeking, seeking to dominate. Then we see Jair. Later, he's a Gileadite. He lives on the other side of the Jordan in the region that belonged to the tribe of Gad. And, and that area is in the country of Jordan now. And it says that he had 30 sons and they rode on 30 donkeys. And you're like, what in the world is that all about? It's probably meant to show that he was, he was wealthy and his sons were, were like royalty. And then that day, royalty would ride on a donkey. And so they were, they, they were like royalty. They were like princes in the land. They had 30 cities and there was, there was a widespread peace and stability. I know that often in our politics today, politics today, I would just love some stability, right? Wouldn't you just love 45 years of peace and no conflict? It's the grace and mercy of God whenever we receive those things. And so this paints really a, a picture of a peaceful life. What it could look like when people followed a judge with no major issues and the nation enjoys relative quiet and relative calm. And then here's the thing, though. After these judges died, they didn't learned the lesson of mercy and live in gratitude to that, they, they immediately responded by going back to their old ways. They received God's grace and mercy for 45 years, but then we see that, that mercy and grace can be rejected, right? We see that in verses 6 through 9. Mercy and grace can be rejected. And that's just what they did. As soon as God's leader, as soon as God's deliverer died... They went back to their old ways, searching for their own kind of deliverer, searching for their own God. And when, when their leader, God's representative, died, they went looking for their own leader, someone who could get them what they wanted. They didn't live in response to the grace of God. Instead, they turned back to look to benefit themselves. You know, Luke 15, Jesus told us a parable of 
what we call the prodigal son, and, and I think is, is more aptly named the, the parable of two sons, because they're both prodigal, but in different ways. But this, this first son, he goes away, and it tells us in Luke 15, 11, it says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And, and he divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered the property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He, he took his father's grace. He took his father's mercy. He took all the, the gifts his father had given to him, and he assumed they were meant to be used for himself, and he went and he was self-indulgent. And it led to a destitute place, <clears throat> a destitute place where he was feeding pigs. That's kind of what we see here in this passage. The people of Israel, they experienced 45 years of, of grace, 45 years of mercy, and, and how do they respond? They, they looked to get for themselves. And they became so depraved that, that they gathered to themselves all the gods of the nations around them. In Deuteronomy 7, God had commanded his people to make sure when you go in, you, you take these seven nations all around and make sure you devote them to destruction. Completely get rid of them. Don't allow them in your midst. Don't tolerate them or they'll corrupt you. And now what we see here is a complete reversal of that. It's the first time in Judges that all seven of those nations' gods are mentioned. And what that's meant to show is this slide. They were living for themselves, looking to get for themselves. And because of their unbelief, their disobedience, they hadn't obeyed God. They became complacent. They weren't serving God any longer. Now they're serving all these seven gods of the seven nations around them. And this kind of represents the fulfillment, the completion of their depravity. It wasn't, it, it wasn't depraved in every way, but it was, it was showing that they were completely depraved, even if they hadn't totally become corrupted in every way. They weren't serious about obeying God. They were only obeying God partially. They are only doing that to get for themselves what they thought they wanted. They were doing that so they could accumulate to themselves. Now they've given in fully these false gods that they tolerated. They refused to remove them from their midst. You know, how often do we do the same thing? But in our lives, we, we tolerate those little idols in our lives. We tolerate the idols of the nation around us. We tolerate the false gods that tell us that they will get us what we need. They will get us what we want. How many times do we do that and we fail to remove them? They'd experienced this period of God's restraining grace. And that, that time was meant to turn them back to God. Yet when his restraining grace was removed, they turned away from God into false gods. It says they forsook the Lord and didn't serve him. They acted as if he didn't exist. It, it, they took his very real provision and his, his very real existence. And they acted as if it didn't matter to them. As if it didn't make a difference in their daily lives. You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you can begin to live like that. And, and you can get to the place where you just go through the motions and you, you're not living as if God makes a difference in your daily life. They took their covenant with God for granted. They took his provision and his grace and his love and his deliverance for granted. And whenever we look to any other God any other idol, we're, we're shunning the Lord's deliverance. We're taking lightly the covenant of grace that he's made with us. We are spiritually dallying around in our marriage covenant to Jesus. The people, they, they, they essentially went back to the ways of magic, the ways of, of the magical, mystical ways of looking at the world that the peoples around them live by. 
And you might think, well, magic, is that like Harry Potter? No, this is, this is when you look to manipulate the spiritual realm to get you what you want. The idea of using the supernatural to, to get what the worshiper wants, that's, that's magic. And they were living this magical way. The people removed this, the uncomfortable portions of what it meant to, to live for God and, and all that living for him requires. And instead, they just turned to other gods so they could manipulate them and control them to get what they wanted. That's how all the nations around them lived. Sometimes it's how we live. In Jeremiah 2, many hundreds of years later, he is correcting the nation because they've lived in such a way. He says, has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this be shocked, and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What kind of broken cisterns do we hew out? Where do we look to satisfy our thirst? Their idols couldn't hold any water. They couldn't meet their deepest needs, provide any real deliverance. And yet often we're tempted to do the same kind of thing. We're tempted to look for satisfaction, for deliverance, and things that were never meant to satisfy, never meant to deliver. As a result of their abandoning the Lord and and turning away from him, look in verse 7, it says, The anger of the Lord, so the anger of the Lord was kindled, burning hot. There's a direct consequence for living like that, for shunning God's mercy, for shunning his grace, for taking his mercy and grace for granted. There's a direct consequence to that. We see that when mercy and grace are taken for granted, they can also be rejected. And then when they're rejected, it's, it's going to have consequences. They sought to compromise. They wanted ease. They wanted peace. They wanted prosperity. But false gods, they don't ever deliver as promised. Don't think that the false god you're hoping in will deliver. They only bring bondage and despair. And so we see that the anger of the Lord, he's kindled in response. This past week I had some time with some Acts 29 pastors and we took some time away um, to talk about where we're, what we're, how we're doing and where God was at work and, and talk about how we could grow. And it was a good time, but we had a time outside for a fire and, and the guys were just hanging around talking. So I just kind of went outside, snuck out there, built a fire um, I took a bunch of dry kindling, piled it up, took some other dried leaves and, and stuff, stuffed them in the middle and took some dry logs and piled it all around. And then I lit the fire. And then I realized that, uh-oh, this fire took off quickly because the wind kicked up and the wind blew and the fire just got huge. And then I thought, well, how am I going to go get them and tell them that the fire's ready? Because I don't want to leave this thing because it's burning so hot and so quickly. And that's kind of this, this picture that the people of Israel had thrown on all kinds of kindling. They had continually rejected God's grace and his mercy, continually took and taken things for granted. And now we see there's this burning wrath of God. This is not, God's not being capricious here. He is burning with jealousy towards them because they are his people. He is their God. He was meant to be their husband, their spiritual husband. And, and they have prostituted themselves to these other gods. And so if God didn't respond this way, he wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be kind. If, if a husband responded to his wife being unfaithful with, oh, well, no big deal, it would reveal that there was no love there in the first place. This picture we have here is the Israelites presenting more and more kindling, more and more materials of dead works and empty living, provoking the Lord, and his anger is growing hot. And it's justified. 
And it says that, that he brought the Philistines in their west and the south. And we see that, that mercy and grace are corrected. I mean, mercy and, we see mercy and grace of, of sin corrected. Their sin is corrected, and that's actually an extension of God's mercy and grace. Sometimes we don't think of correction as a form of mercy. But correction keeps us from going further down a path to, to the place where we're completely self-deceived and where we won't respond. And so what we see here is God, he gathers the nations around them so that they'll respond. And sometimes in our own lives, when, when God brings consequences, it's not punishment from God, but it is, it is consequences of us turning ourselves over to sin. And God's saying, well, I'm going to let you experience the consequences for that so that you see that you need me. You see that you need my mercy, my grace. And it arrests us. It stops us. And it actually is the means that God breaks us free from our sins. And so we see they surrounded them. And it says they were crushed. They were, they were shattered. They were oppressed. They were surrounded. They were severely distressed on every side. Not only on the side of the Jordan, but they came right into the heartland of Israel. And what we see is really that's the mercy and grace of sin corrected. You know, if I had a tumor and I went to the doctor and I was unaware of that tumor and the doctor discovers that I have a tumor but, but kept it to himself, didn't tell me, just let it grow, let it go unchecked, that doctor could be sued for malpractice, right? It would also be terribly unkind and unloving of the doctor. And yet if the doctor told me, hey, you have a tumor, you know, how should I respond? Should I be offended? Oh, no, I've got a tumor. Oh, you're a mean guy. Why would you tell me I have a tumor? How mean is that? How terrible is that? It would be mercy. It would be grace so that it could be corrected and taken out. So that's what God is doing. He's correcting them so that he can extend his mercy and grace. This is the mercy and grace of sin corrected. And then we see at first that people of Israel respond. And at first you think, oh, this is good. This is really good news. Look in verse 10. It says they respond and say, we've sinned against you, Lord. We've forsaken our God and, and served the Baals. And you're like, wow, well, they're responding. And this is one of the first times we see the details of their response. And I, and I think that's actually because their response is insufficient and we're meant to see that. They, they, they see that they've sinned. Now, they cry out to God. They see they've sinned. They know that they've gone to other gods. But do you, do you see what's missing in verse 10? There, there's no plea for forgiveness. There's no, there's no change. They're not... They're not putting away idols. It seems like an okay confession at first, but it really is empty. There's, there's no appeal for forgiveness. There's no throwing themselves on God's grace. There's no personal awareness of their offense against God to the extent that they see that we have sinned. Would you forgive us? And then, God, we, we want to live differently in response. They appeal to God to rescue them. It's devoid of any of the signs of true repentance. And I think that here is here for a warning for us as well. Sometimes when we confess our sin to God, it can be because we're experiencing the consequences of sin. We don't like consequences of sin. At least I don't like consequences for sin. And that's actually why we even discipline our children so they can feel the pain of that so they can experience consequences for sinning and then hopefully turn to God. But if it just stops with that and there's no turning to the gospel, no turning to God, then it's really insufficient. And so we see that that's what they do. They, there's insufficient. They cry out. But it seems to be a cry more of desperation meant to manipulate God into getting relief and the consequences of their sin. You ever, you ever do that? You ever cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. I don't like these consequences. They are terrible. But then you, 
you don't respond with heartfelt requests for forgiveness, for with a desire to change, a desire to be different in response, we're putting away of those idols. I mean, sometimes we can pray and cry out to God, and it's not conviction or desire to live for Him. It's, it's just because we want to get rid of the consequences. We don't like doing the hard work of putting away of false gods and serving God wholeheartedly. And as a pastor, like this is meant to challenge us to say, how do we repent? How are we confessing? Do, is there really a pursuit of change? Is there real heart change, or is it just acknowledgement of difficult circumstances and ask to be relieved? Sometimes we cry, cry out because we're desperate from relief, and we try to use this apparent conviction as a means of manipulation. And then, really, we treat God like a magical genie. But the Lord won't be treated like a genie in a bottle. I, I like the way that Dale, Dale Ross Davis put it. He says, the theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course, God will help you in your need. And by the way, this is bad theology, okay? <laughs> that he will help you in your need, that he is, helpfully enough, incredibly naive and hopelessly soft. He's like a great warm vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. And don't we do that at times? Religion's a great game. You only need to know a few rules. And Yahweh's a great God if you happen to need him and want to use him. And how many people, especially here in the buckle of the Bible belt, live life like this, like God's a vending machine. You do certain things to appease him and then hopefully he'll give you relief. That it's a game if you play by the rules, if you happen to need him when you remember those times, not day by day, but when you get into trouble, now we pray. Now, it's not bad to pray when you're in trouble, by the way. It's extremely good. God calls us to come to him. But he doesn't want just that. He doesn't want just Sundays and Wednesday nights. He, he, he wants our whole life to be lived as worship to him in response to his mercy. He's not a lucky rabbit's foot or a talisman. He's not going to be used to serve our own ends. And what we see is that really the prodigal, is not the prodigal returning home. This is an unfaithful spouse who is homeless, asking to be taken back into the home for a while only until they find a better situation. That's what Israel is doing. And so we see God's response because at first you can see God's response and think, whoa, why is he rejecting the repentance? And God's response is because they're not really repentant. And so we see in verse 11, he says, didn't I save you? And he lists all the country, all those nations, all seven of those nations, by the way. All the gods he delivered them from that they have chosen to serve. He says, didn't I deliver you from all these gods? And every time you cried out to me, I saved you out of their hand. He says, yet you've forsaken me and served the other gods. And he says, look in verse 13. Therefore, I will save you no more. Because he knows their heart. Their heart's really to, to get from him. Because those other gods haven't satisfied. And now they're looking to... to to use God in the same way. They were, they were ungrateful, they were treasonous. And, and that, that response of God is meant to be shocking. It was meant to be shocking to the readers then, it's meant to be shocking to us today. And it's meant to be a warning. When, when, we, when our, our repentance is really just trying to seek to manipulate God, God will not be manipulated. And so he tells them in verse 14, he says, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. And the irony here is that God chose them and he redeemed them from all these gods and yet they chose to go back just like a dog returns to its vomit. He says, let them save you in the time of your distress. This is extreme sarcasm. Because there's no salvation. They have been unfaithful to save for many years, countless times. 
They chosen their gods, their gods couldn't save them because they weren't real gods in the first place. So God effectively says to them, if you really want other gods, you can have them. Sometimes God does that to us too. If you really want other gods, you can have them. You made your bed, now lie in it. And God is challenging them to get their attention. And thank God he challenges us and he rebukes us. His rebuke, his challenges to us, his correction of us is never meant to punish us and leave us in our sin. It's meant to actually confront us and deliver us from our sins. You see, correction is a form of mercy and grace. And God extends correction. Maybe you're experiencing the correction of the Lord even now as you're sitting here thinking, am I really repenting? Am I really turning from the things those old ways? Or am I just trying to use God? Am I just living a, a, a pseudo-Christian life because it gets me what I want, gets me what I need, and it's pleasant, and it's a good way to live? Or am I really living for him? And if God's bringing that conviction to you, it's just not so that you can stay condemned, it's so you can be set free, and God can extend his mercy and grace to you. See, God was desiring for them to repent and to follow him, and that's his desire for us too. Not just to cry out when it's convenient, but to follow him and his kindness is, is meant to lead us to repentance. And true repentance is going to see, be seen in a life that's not just serving him in words, but where we see where our, our need for him from the heart and then respond with our lives. It means we acknowledge our sins and place ourselves in God's hand, trusting in him no matter what. And it means we put away our idols. It means that we become God's servants. So the last thing we see in verses 15 to 18 is really the mercy and grace restored. There's mercy and grace restored. The story, story of the prodigal son, it didn't end with him in misery. What his misery was, was designed. His misery was designed by God. He, he was miserable, but not to stay in misery so that he could wake up and see that there is an alternative Luke 15, 16 tells us the end of the story, or close to the end of the story. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Those false gods, those things he served, couldn't give him anything. Those false gods we serve, they won't give us. They won't feed us. It says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. You see there's a contrition here. There is a heartfelt awareness of need for God personally. He says, I've sinned against heaven and, against, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. Oh, and here's the, here's the amazing mercy and grace of the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Talk about mercy. You know, think about what, how you would treat someone who, who took everything from you and left and wasted it. Would you be like, hey, come on back. Great to see you. I'd love to have you in my home again. The father does that. He, he sees him and has compassion and runs and embraces and kisses him. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's what we see in a sense, although it might still be impartial, and there's a hint of that. But we see that there's a, a sense of true repentance here in verses 15. It says, we've sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. They are casting themselves on his mercy. Okay, we, we've sinned, do, do whatever you think is good. And then in verse 16, they put away the foreign gods from among them. 
they, they, they responded not just with mere words, with heartfelt conviction, with, with throwing themselves on the mercy of their Lord, and then they responded by putting away the foreign gods, and, and they served the Lord. That's what repentance looks like. It's, not just, it's just not just words. It's heartfelt conviction. It's throwing ourselves in God's mercy, and then it's putting away those idols, putting away those false gods, and then turning to the Lord and serving him. And then, then the next line says, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm torn here. This, this is, seems to be repentance on their part, and true repentance. But, but what's interesting here is it doesn't say, and he forgave them because they asked. No. This is more like in Matthew 18, the parable of this man who owed an unpayable debt, and he goes to the king, and he says, please forgive me. And the king says, um, I forgive you all your debt, but not because of his, he could repay it, but because he had mercy on him. And, and that's kind of the response that we see here as well. God, God's impatient of the misery of Israel. He, he just has mercy on them. He sees they're miserable, and so he's about to act, and we'll see that in chapter 11. He's about to raise up Jephthah. They did demonstrate repentance. They confessed their sins and trust themselves to God. They put away false gods. They served the Lord. But that's not why God showed mercy. God showed mercy to them because he's merciful. God showed mercy to them because they needed it. Not because of their performance, not because they'd earned it. Not because they followed a recipe, they did what was needed and, and it seemed good. It doesn't say God responded to the repentance, it says no, God became impatient of the misery of Israel. His soul was grieved, is another way of putting that, with the misery. His soul couldn't endure the misery of Israel. He couldn't bear the misery of Israel. It wasn't primarily the repentance that moved God. It was their mercy. It was God's own heart that moved him because of their misery. That's what God does for us. He looks on our misery. Our, our confession really even is not really ever good enough. Our repentance is not ever good enough. That's not what earns favor. We, we depend on God's mercy entirely. And then we see that what happens is the, the Ammonites, they amass, their enemies in the east are called to arms. They amass over in Gilead on the other side of the Jordan. And so in response, the people of Israel come together across the way of Mizpah. And then look in verse 18. They say to one another, who is the man? They, they realize that they're dependent on God's mercy and they need someone to lead them. But even after they repent, they don't quite get it. They say, whoever will lead the fight will be head over all the people living in the Gilead region. He says, who, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He'll be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. What they're saying is, um, okay, God, thank you for your mercy. And, and then now there's an enemy that comes and they respond to this enemy and they see, they, they, they fall back into practicality. Who's going to lead the fight against their enemy? They have a real need, but strikingly there's not a, an appeal to God for a leader. There's no mention of God raising up a leader for them yet either. You know, when we face enemies that are too great for us, we are meant to ask that question, who will fight for us? That's good. We're meant to say who's going to lead us, and we're meant to look to someone else to be our head because we need a leader. We need somebody to fight for us. We need somebody who can do what we're unable to do. But we're not meant to seek a deliverer of our own making. So even in the midst of their repentance, and then we see that they're still seeking a deliverer of their own making. They're still trying to, to, to respond to this crisis, to the enemy, with a man-made response. And, and you know what? How, how often are we tempted to, to solve 
the battles against us, those the enemies, and to meet them with our most expedient means. What, what they should have done here is cried out to God and said, God, would you give us a deliverer? Will you do what you've done before? Raise up a deliverer. Lord, who would you have? We're meant to not see them as an example in every way, but to see them as an example at times of how, how we're not to behave and, and learn from them because we're often like them. We're meant to look to God to save us, to ask him for his deliverer. And, and in that, there's hope. There's real hope. Because God's greatest, God's people's greatest hope is the mercy and grace of God, not anything we can do. The good news is that God has mercy on us. He's extended his free offer of his grace to us and he's raised up a deliverer for us and we're meant to cry out for him and say, Lord, would you give us a deliverer? Lord, would you lead us? We don't, we don't want a head over us just because it's expedient or because he looks like he can solve our political battles, our, our problems, our issues, the things in the world around us. No, we need someone who is far greater than that. We need someone who God raises up. And here's the good news. God has raised up his son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. God, God has raised up his son from, from infancy, so he's like us in every way. He's raised him up. Someone like us who fought for us but not against earthly armies or enemies. Even though, even in his day, that's what the people still wanted. You know, his disciples was really crazy. They, they walked with him for at least three years, and yet they still were like, well, when are you going to deliver us from, from the Romans? Like, what are you going to do to conquer them? Because you're the Messiah, and they had an expectation that the Messiah would conquer through earthly means. And sometimes that's our expectation, too. We want, we want God to deliver us on from earthly things, and we want God to, to give us a kingdom here that's worldly. And God says, no, my kingdom's not of this world. And he's raised up a deliverer from us who's delivering us from, from trusting in the things of the world, from trusting in the leaders of the world. He fought against hypocrisy and legalism, self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and every manner of sin. And then, and then here's what else God did? He, he raised up his leader and put him on a cross to give him self-sacrificially, leading to way to eternal life through believing in him. He's the one who's our true and perfect head. He's the one we need to cry out to. He's the one we need. Not an appointed political or military leader. He's the leader we need, the head of the church. And, and how, what, how are we meant to respond to this passage? We're meant to see the mercy and grace of God Cry out to him. Look to our deliverer. Look to the one he's raised up and then live in gratitude and a life of worship to him. Not trusting anything we can do, but solely relying on his mercy and grace. To live a life of gratitude for his mercy and grace because his mercy and grace truly is more. Let's pray and then we'll have the band come up and we'll sing together. Father, Thank you for passages like this that we can learn from. That teach us about ourselves. That teach us about you. Teach us about our true need for you. And teach us about your mercy and grace to us. God, I pray that as we close, Lord, we would renounce trusting in any other means. Lord, we would renounce 
Lord, even trusting in our own, for, our own repentance. We would we renounce trusting in our own ability to repent good enough or to respond good enough, Lord. And I pray that we would look to Christ, that we would say all we have is Christ and we put our hope and our confidence in you, Jesus, to be our deliverer, to be our head. And, and God, I pray that, that we would live each and every day in response to you and to the gift that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.